The talk you're about to listen to is a presentation of Penn State Crew. To find out more about Penn State Crew or to find more talks, music, and videos, check out PennStateCrew.org. Hi guys, like this said, my name's Morgan. Uh, I'm an intern. I feel like I know most of you guys, but if you've never met me, hello. Uh, this talk's gonna be interesting tonight because I have a handheld mic and I speak with my hands. So bear with me if I by accident move the mic away from my mouth. Um, I just wanna get right into the talk. So I'm really excited. We are doing this apologetic series. Um, I think it's kind of cool that we're using topics that like some of us are in classes in or majoring in to discuss the Bible and discuss Christianity um, and even use it to defend it. Uh, I'm doing the history portion, which I'm very excited about. Um, and basically we're gonna look at a few events that are talked about in the Bible, but I want to answer a main question that's always been, I feel like it's something, I don't know, I have always been curious about, but why would someone die for Jesus? Why would someone actually be willing to give up their life for Jesus? There are people who are gonna be handing out books and I'm gonna be going through the Bible kind of quickly through different texts. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand and they will give you books. Awesome, don't chuck it. <laughs> okay, so yeah, why would someone die for Jesus? Um, the, I wanted to tell you guys that the main source that I used for my talk um, was a book called Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. The reason I'm telling you this is because there was a lot in that book. And I know a few of you actually are going through the book as well. Um, and so if there are things that I don't mention for each event that you're more curious about, obviously you can come talk to me if you want, but like that book would also provide a lot of answers. Um, but yeah, so we're gonna be looking at three ma main events uh, this evening to answer this question. We're going to be looking at the crucifixion, so Jesus' death on the cross. We're going to be looking at the empty tomb, and we're going to be looking at the resurrection. And we're going to get right into it. So first question, did Jesus actually die on the cross? Some of you that grew up in Sunday school might be like, uh, yeah, he did, because they told me he did. Um, but there's a reality that there's a theory out there called the swoon theory, that Jesus just passed out on the cross, that he didn't actually die when he was on there. So later, the events of resurrection were just Jesus walking after he passed out on the cross. So we're going to be going over what actually happened on the cross to Jesus to try to debunk this. I am going to be going over some medical terms, nothing gory, but I recognize there are people out there that don't like that stuff. So I have a nifty little red bandana. This symbolizes that I am talking about those things. So it's a visual cue for you if you want to plug your ears or something to, when I take this down, I'll finish, have finished talking about the details that I'm gonna be going over. It's great. All right, so first off, uh, starting in John 19 verse one, it says, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Flogging is whipping. Um, so Jesus was flogged by Roman soldiers before he was even put on the cross. Roman flogging included ninth, no, not 90, sorry, 39 plus lashes. When I say plus, I mean 39 was the number and depending on how the day went and how they were feeling and who they were flogging, they sometimes added onto that number. And f if you've ever read stories in the Bible of how they mocked Jesus, he, he might've gotten an extra couple lashes. 
The whip that they used was braided leather that had metal balls woven into it and sharp pieces of bone. This basically caused bruising and contusions and also cut into the skin and the muscle. Sometimes these beatings were so gruesome and so bad, actually part of the spine was exposed. Um, and there's a reality that there were people that would die from this beating before they even got on to the cross. It's how bad those beatings were. Now, uh, Jesus, from this beating, probably would have experienced something called hypovolemic shock. I'm not a medical student, so if I say any of these words wrong, my sister's going to laugh at me because she is, um, but I'm sorry. Um, in Luke 23, verse 26, it says, And as they led him, Jesus, away, they seized one Simon of Syrian, who was coming from the country, and laid him on the cross to carry it behind Jesus. So hypovolemic shock, sorry again, Michelle, um, is basically a suffering that's caused by the effects of losing a lot of blood. Um, there's a lot of things that it produces in the body, um, but the main thing is it causes a lot of exhaustion. And basically the way a crucifixion would work is the horizontal part of the beam that the arms would be on, the person who is being crucified would have to carry that up to the vertical beam that was already in the ground. But because of the beating, Jesus couldn't actually do that. So they had to ask someone else to carry it for him. That's how exhausted he was. And now we've gotten to the actual crucifixion. So what would happen is they would put the horizontal beam on the ground, lay Jesus on it and stretch out his arms, and they would nail him to the cross. There's a lot of talk about like it says the hand and that wouldn't really work because it would tear through the hand um, but at the time the language when they said hand actually included everything from the wrist up so he was nailed in the wrist and the nail would have gone through the median nerve and crushed it now everyone here has had the experience of banging their elbow on something right and hitting their funny bone and how painful that is um, you're actually hitting a nerve when you do that and in Case for Christ, the medical examiner that was explaining this said the pain that Jesus would have been feeling was like taking a pair of pliers, clamping on that nerve, and twisting it. So that pain was going up and down his arms as he was nailed onto the cross. Then at that point, the beam would have been hoisted up onto the vertical post, and his feet would have been nailed in. Same type of thing crushing nerves and pain in his legs. Now this, this whole process would have caused his arms to stretch about six inches and his shoulders to be dislocated. Now I'm gonna read this next part, um, which is an excerpt from the actual book, um, just because it does a better job of explaining what a crucifixion actually is. So crucifixion is essentially an agonizing slow death by asphyxiation. The reason is that the stresses on the muscles and the diaphragm put the chest in an inhale position. In order to exhale, the individual must push up on his feet so the tension on the muscles would be eased for a moment. Basically, he had to push up on the nails that were buried in his feet. It's great. Um, then the person could relax, and once they did, they could inhale again, but if they wanted to exhale again, they had to do that again. So basically, the person would be doing this until they couldn't anymore. 
until they were exhausted. As a person would slow down his breathing, he goes into what is called respiratory acidosis. <laughs> the carbon dioxide in the blood is dissolved as carbonatic acid, causing the acidity of the blood to increase. I didn't really understand what that meant either when I read it. But basically what it does is it leads to irregular heartbeat. In Jesus' case, his heart would have been beating erratically and basically leads to cardiac arrest. Now, uh, if you've ever read scripture and how the story goes, um, something that is mentioned in scripture that is what they would do during a crucifixion is if they went around and the people weren't dead, they would break their legs so that they couldn't push up anymore and die. But when they got to Jesus, he was already dead. But in John 19, verse 34, it says, but one soldier pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. So the, most likely he was pierced on the right side. It would have gone into his lung and into his heart. Now, taking the scarf off, uh, this is a lot, and it's, a lot of you probably are like, oh yeah, like he's definitely dead. But there are people who still claim that it's possible that he was still alive because the people at the time didn't actually know much about medicine and about this stuff. They had very primitive knowledge, so they couldn't actually tell that he was dead, and they probably just mistaked being passed out for dead. But the reality is, yes, that's true, but Roman soldiers were experts at killing people. They were experts in death. They knew when someone was dead. There's also the reality that in this situation where it's a prisoner, if that prisoner was alive and escaped, the Roman soldiers who were in charge of making sure he was dead would die themselves. So they had personal incentive to make sure that someone was dead. So Jesus died. The next question we're going to be answering is how was the tomb emptied? Um, we're going off the assumption that the tomb was emptied empty and that there was a tomb. Um, there are more arguments against, or not against it, but like disproven in Case for Christ. So if you're interested in reading more about that. But the reality is that people at the time could check on the tomb themselves if they wanted to. So the tomb was empty. But the question here is how did it get empty? So there's only three ways that really could have been empty. First one, he survived and got out of it himself. Second one, he died, and the disciples stole his body. And the third one, he resurrected. Now, we're going back to the first one, and this is based off the assumption that what we just went through is false, even though we kind of said that that's not true. Um, so somehow he survives, and he gets out himself. The reality is his body would have been completely battered from the crucifixion. So imagining someone going through what I explained for the crucifixion, trying to ro uh, roll away a giant stone from the tomb and walk miles and find his disciples. The reality is that's most likely not going to happen or he would have been caught before he actually reached the disciples. But then there's also the point that he's also in a very pathetic state at this point. Um, he would have been very close to death if he had not died on the cross. And the reality is, if this was the state he arrived to the disciples at, they wouldn't have died for him. They would have felt pity for him and tried to take care of him and nurse him back to health, but they, they would not have died for him. 
The second one, he died and the disciples stole his body. So this is an interesting one because it's actually mentioned in the Bible as a idea of something that could happen. Um, going to Matthew 27 and starting in verse 62, it says, the next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be the worst, is, will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So this was something that the Jewish people would claim when the disciples said, like, oh, he has risen. They would say, oh, well, you just stole his body. But the reality is the tomb was guarded, so they couldn't have actually gotten to the body. And also to harp back on my last point, would they have died for a dead man if they wouldn't have died for a man that did survive the crucifixion? And then the last one is being resurrected. Before we actually get there, though, something else I want to mention about this story and about the empty tomb is the witnesses of the tomb being empty. Basically, women, a group of women, were the people that found the tomb empty. And you might be like, why is that important? Women are cool. Um, but the reality is, at the time, women were not respected in any form of the way as men were. Um, they were not supposed to make important discoveries. They were not supposed to be important people and trusted with their information. Actually, in Luke, Luke 24, so it says, uh, starting verse 1, it says, but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they, the women, went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they... But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. If we skip down to verse 10, it says, Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So even at the beginning, the apostles didn't believe the women. It's because they were women reason I bring up this point is there's an argument that talks about these tales and a lot of tales in the Bible as legends, that they were some sort of story made up to sell a point to people. And the reality is if this was a legend and the way they viewed women versus men at the time, it would have been men that discovered that Jesus wasn't there, not women. And now we go on to did Jesus actually resurrect? Now, I believe he resurrected, but why? The empty grave itself doesn't point to a resurrected body. But Jesus did die, and that's half of the equation that we need for a resurrection. The other half is a body walking around alive. For that, we have to rely on witnesses. So if you guys are interested, you can turn to Luke 24, and starting in verse 36, it says... As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. 
but they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do, you doubt, why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see me. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the laws of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to, the to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and the rep repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with the power from on high. So in this passage, Jesus does a few things to prove to the disciples that he's real because they didn't even believe that he was real. First thing he does is he speaks to them. Then he tells them to touch him. And then he eats in front of them. Those things spirits don't do. Part of the reason I bring up this passage is because people will say sometimes that these are hallucinations. It didn't actually happen. They just willfully saw it because they wanted to see it. But the reality is hallucinations are personal and are never shared. Even if all the disciples wanted to see Jesus, the interaction with them, him would have been totally different for each one of them. And they would have come together and been like, wait, he said that to you, but he said this to me. And he did that, well, he did this for me. It wouldn't have been all the same and they wouldn't have been able to agree that he did all of this, which they did agree. The next passage that I wanna look at is in 1 Corinthians, starts, in 1 Corinthians 15. This is an early creed of the church, and this is Paul writing. And starting in verse three, it says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the 12, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now, this points out, this creed points out four important things. Jesus died, he was buried, he rose on the third day, and that he appeared to so many witnesses, so many people that he appeared to, different accounts. I actually wanted to put up a little timeline of the events of the writings of these things in the Bible. So, 1 Corinthians was written around 55 to 57 AD. The creed itself can be traced back between 32 to 38 AD, and Jesus was crucified at 30 AD. 
Now that means, oh, wow. <laughs> That's gonna make the next part a little weird, but just bear with me. Um, so <laughs> that means that there were less than 10 years between the time that Jesus was crucified and the creed had been established. And that also means there was less than 30 years between the time that Corinthians was written and Jesus was crucified. Now, that's not enough time for a legend to have been written. It's not enough time for people to claim something that didn't actually happen. And if you remember, Paul said in verse 6 that many of the witnesses were still alive. So anyone could have checked him on that and gone and talked to those witnesses. As well, Paul collaborated with a lot of the apostles and a lot of the disciples to write this creed. He knew them, he talked with them, he interacted with them. So these are some really good accounts and witnesses claiming the things about Jesus, his death, and his resurrection. But for me, one of the biggest selling points is how there were people's lives changed in the Bible due to these, this resurrection. And I'm going to go through three of them with you that I think are really important. So the first person is James. James is the brother of Christ. He actually grew up with Jesus. He's Mary and Joseph's son. And so he knew Jesus really well. He grew up with him. But the reality is he didn't believe in him. In John 7, it says, 7 verse 5, it says, for not even his brothers believed in him. There are actually parts of the Bible where Jesus' family said he was crazy. He was insane. His own family didn't believe him. James is actually one of the people that Jesus visits when he's resurrected. And in James 2, verse 1, a book that is believed to be written by James, it says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the, the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord of glory. James went from my brother is cuckoo crazy to our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a big difference to believe. And it's because he experienced the resurrection personally. The next person I want to talk about is Peter. Peter was a follower of Christ. Uh, and probably a lot of you who grew up in Sunday school know Peter. Um, he was a huge fan of Jesus. He loved Jesus a lot. Um, he actually defends Jesus as well in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is about to be arrested. In John 18, starting in verse 8, it says, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the ear struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup my father has given me? So that passage shows Peter was going to fight for Jesus. He cared about him that much. But then those of you who also know Peter also know, ooh, bug, sorry, <laughs> also know that he denied Jesus three times. So in Luke 22, starting in verse 54, it says, then they seized him, Jesus, and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house and Peter following at a distance. 
And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you are also one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour still, another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, that how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So he denied Jesus. Uh, to give you a bit of a time of what just happened, it's mentioned in the first verse, Jesus has just been arrested. And Peter wouldn't admit that he knew him. So Jesus hasn't even died yet. And Peter wouldn't have died for him. But the reality is Peter is also one of the people that Jesus appears to. And in Acts, he's also one of the first people to speak out on behalf of the new church after the Holy Spirit has come down. In Acts 2, starting in verse 22, it says, and this is Peter speaking, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible possible for him to be held by it. So he, he was changed after Jesus appeared to him, after he had died and was resurrected. The last person I want to talk about is Paul, who was the one that we mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, who wrote the Creed. Now, in verses 8 to 9, it says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul killed Christians before he met Jesus. He was literally an enemy of the church. And after meeting Jesus, he changed. And there are two sections in Acts that I want to read through um, that I just think really show how big of an impact the resurrection had on him. So Acts 20, starting in verse 22, it says, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. So in this section, he's talking about how he recognizes the cost of following Jesus he recognizes 
what it means when he goes about proclaiming that he's at risk. Um, and he is at risk for his life. And he knows that, and he's willing to risk it. Now, further on in Acts 21, um, to give you a little bit of background, they're traveling, and they're going towards Jerusalem. And Peter, not Peter, Paul, sorry, wrong person. Paul um, had been warned by people. They were saying, you know, don't do that. It's dangerous. Don't go to Jerusalem. But he was determined to go to Jerusalem. On their way there, there was a prophet named Agabus. And starting in, so it's Acts 21, starting in verse 11. It says, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answers, Ooh, sorry, bug on me. I was like, what is that feeling? Uh, <laughs> sorry, verse 13. Then Paul answers, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. These men were willing to die for Jesus because they took the resurrection personally, not just because he visited them, because of what it meant. The death meant he paid for our sins. The resurrection shows his power and glory. And each person that I mentioned felt empowered enough by that to risk their lives for him. So this year, I was able to go on a vision trip overseas to East Asia. And Catherine and I actually got to spend some time together going in the word. And this passage was the passage we ended up studying. And we talked a lot about how amazing the risks are that people take today. For us that went over there, if they found out what we were doing, the worst that would happen to us is they would send us back here. And that's not that bad, honestly. The people that work over there nationally and speak in God's name, they can be imprisoned. And in times in history and potentially in the future, they can be tortured and killed for what they believe and for speaking about it. It's very serious. And... I'll be honest, I don't think a lot of us in America take the resurrection personally or seriously for our own lives. And I'm speaking even about myself. I was just a student last year, and I believe there were a lot of times where I didn't let the power of the resurrection empower me to speak out about what I believed and stand up for Jesus. And I think a lot of you guys go through that day to day where you deal in your classes with people speaking out or saying things and you fear being socially outcasted but there were people who were literally willing to die for Jesus and there are people who still do that today so I just want to leave you with the question are you taking the resurrection personally and take some time to contemplate that in your life if you actually feel like you do I'm going to pray as the worship team comes up. God, I, I thank you for everything you had happen 
that you created in the paths that you made, um, that Jesus was able to come down, live a life as a man, die as a man, and be resurrected. I ask that you would speak to each one of us into our lives, that you would point to us areas where we need to be taking in the power and the glory of the resurrection and letting us letting it empower us to do things and defend you and uh, not hide um, or just be quiet or silent. Ask that everyone would feel that in their heart or feel the need to talk with someone or express to them what they're going through, the, the, the worries that they may have, that you would answer them. And just, I ask that you would continue to shine and your power would not dwindle. In your name, amen. The talk you have just listened to is a presentation of Penn State Crew. Crew is a community where the gospel captures hearts, transforms lives, and launches men and women into a lifelong adventure with Jesus Christ. To find out more about Penn State Crew or to find more talks, music, and videos, check out PennStateCrew.org. That's PennStateCRU.org. This talk is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 United States license. You are free to copy and distribute this talk to others as long as you do not do it for commercial purposes or alter, transform, or build upon this talk in any way.